Hello, everyone. Welcome to the STEMish Podcast, where we are a podcast dedicated to educating and inspiring future generations of STEM professionals through engaged conversations with professionals across the world. We will explore the depths of careers in STEM. My name is Nakia, and tonight I have on episode a special guest, my father, Donnie Williams. So we're going to start off, Daddy, by letting you share a little bit about yourself. Good evening. I'm glad to be able to have this opportunity to share some experiences with you guys. Uh, As Nikki said, my name is Donnie Williams. I am a mechanical engineer by education and have had a long, enjoyable life. And I guess I can do a summation overview of that. I came from a background where money was not plentiful in my family, but pride was. Uh, I come from a broken home where my mother had separated but my father stayed in our lives, thus installing the stubbornness and the willingness never to give up in whatever occupation or whatever endeavor that we chose. And that in itself led me to want to strive higher, not only in education, uh, but in life itself. I learned at an early age that hard work paid off Uh, When I was in high school, I worked uh, at a sorority house on the LSU campus in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In the 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, I was earning my money while also uh, playing in the band, uh, playing baseball, participating in the drama clubs. Uh, That degree of that want to be successful was was always there. from I said, as I said earlier, from a family background in a directional background. What else would you like to know from that point? Thank you, Daddy. Can you tell us a little bit about your work career as it relates to science, technology, engineering, and math? Some of the jobs that you've had over that time. Sure, but I think before we go there, I think we need to stop and take a look at the the environment in the neighborhood and of the neighbors uh, that might shed some light on future decisions that I made. When I was growing up, as I said, it was not an affluent neighborhood, but everyone was your mother and everyone was your father and that you had to be on your P's and Q's at all times. And it was expected that even though there were bad people in the neighborhood, that was almost an unwritten rule that certain people you just did not mess with or you did not associate with if you wanted to get ahead. And likewise, all of the adults in the neighborhood knew who they were and made sure that they stayed away from the kids who was not going down that route. So you could take either route. You could go a criminal route, or you could go an educational route, or you can just have a normal job. And that was all fine and dandy. 
but there were some unwritten rules in the neighborhood that 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 I would say the people who were going the wrong route, for my opinion, did not cross, and we all respected each other. With that in mind, as I said earlier, when I was trying to decide what I was going to do and going to college, I was lucky enough to have the foresight. As my father told me a long time ago, he was a part-time farmer uh, when I would go to the country to visit him and he would be out there tending his garden and we'd be in the garden with a hole in a rake making long rows, 50 yards long that he called the garden. <laughs> and he told me a long time ago, he said, boy, you aren't cut out for farm work and working in the field, you better get education. <laughs> and that early on let me know I was not cut out to be a farmer. Uh, that being said, uh, when I was in high school, I had instructors and teachers who took an interest in sort of steering me toward more of the sciences because I was rather good in the sciences. And being rather good in the scientists, I was not very good, more or less, in, in the written end of it, in the spelling end of it. And I found out later that most technical people were not. But in any event, in high school, they encouraged me to take the, the physics and the, the maths, the, the advanced algebras and things of that nature to get me ready for college. And the one regret I had about high school was that uh, I wanted to take typing and they would not let me take typing because they said, hey, you'll have someone else typing for you. Don't worry about that. And as my career developed along, the one thing that I regretted the most was not really learning how to type properly. Mm -hmm. In any event, once entering college, believe it or not, I wanted to be an architect. And an architect, I would walk by the senior architectural majors, little loft they would call it. They'd have all their little beds and everything up there. And it was night and neat. I thought that was fun. Um, but after becoming a freshman, that second semester, I did a little research and found out that it was mechanical engineers who was making all the money and getting those uh, offers. So I decided to switch my major mm -hmm. because I was always interested in mechanical anyway. Uh, but that first, before I even became a freshman, I entered a program with Atomic Engine Commission out of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where they brought about five guys from historically back colleges up there to do summer internships and to show you what an experience it was having never been to a college classroom and walking to that type of an environment i had to have a security clearance and the fbi came to my high school interviewed my teachers interviewed my wife now venus uh, i didn't even know they were on campus to see what type of a person i was and once i got to oak ridge tennessee some of you may recall oak ridge tennessee was where the atomic bomb a lot of the research was done, uh, and I happened to work in a plant of uranium U-235 where they make the bomb. I worked in that plant, oh. and when going into, and going into that plant, I had my my FBI's clearance had not cleared yet, and I would go to work in the morning, and a guard would pick me up in the gate, take me to the uh, library, and if I had to go to the restroom, I had to call a guard to take me out of there to the restroom and take me back. That's how tight the security was. And once I received my security, I went to work in an area where if any equipment ever went in there, inside of that complex, it never came out. It was that type of secret. So I learned early on to keep secrets and to kind of start to broaden my, my view in what the job market might have available. 
And on that particular job, it was more computer computer engineering type work. Uh, from there, uh, I went to let's see, I went to Denver, Colorado, and I worked with the Chevron Oil Oil Company on their engineering staff. Uh, and their engineering staff would travel Thursday and Fridays, most times on weekends, to somewhere in Colorado or Wyoming, and they had a little Learjet. And I'd love to fly that Learjet. Once a week, we'd go off, and I had the opportunity to see that part of the country. Uh, and at the same time, learn about oil, oil wells and small refineries along those lines, along with the engineering type work that went into doing that type of work. From there, I went to uh, Chevron Oil Company, uh, no, Union 76 in Los Angeles, California, where I worked in their refinery in the mechanical engineering department, finally, uh, where you get ex got exposed to the oil industry, uh, the, the processing end of it, the mechanical pumps, the distilleries, the machinery, how you design it, how you lay it out how you had to fit everything within a refinery to make gasoline and oil uh, and do it in a productive manner. Uh, they had an engineering staff, they had a field staff, and I was with the engineering staff there. That, uh, that also enabled me to travel the country and that now I had been to Tennessee at Oak Ridge. I had been to Los Angeles, California uh, with Union 76, and I'd been to Chevron Oil in Denver. So with those three jobs, uh, allowed me to travel across the country so when I finally ended my engineering graduated but let me go back a little bit before I do that you need to know something about the time I spent actually in engineering school and the biggest advice that I would think would be, would be that you have to have the determination not only the smarts but the determination to want to be different, to be different, and to make that up in your own self, in your own own mind. No one else can put that into you. It has to be there because engineering school is very, very, very challenging. I was thinking about that earlier today, and I was thinking, what was the most challenging point about engineering school? And I thought for a while, and though the classes, classes the the dynamics and the fluid dynamics and the, the math, uh, the calculus, the, uh, the advanced engineering degrees, the plant transformer type, all of the math was difficult. I thought for a while and I said, you know, you expect that when you go to engineering school. After thinking about it, I thought one of the hardest classes that I had when I was in school was not really in the engineering curriculum but it was in the physics department. And it was particularly a class called philosophy of science. Mm -hmm. And that class was primarily made up of engineering majors and physics majors. And in the engineering side of school, they would teach us to be exact. You can solve a problem, they will give you a problem, you would solve the problem with math or physics, you would come to the correct answer. And they drilled us in that. In this philosophy of science class, it was a little different. This was this guy had a PhD in, in physics, but he would take pride 
and taking engineering majors and taking physics majors and making us think we were dumb. <laughs> and what he would do by that was he would just love to get us in a compromising position and just make us doubt what we thought we were new because we would go in there with our heads big and we knew it all. And I never forget today in a, one class we were having, he said, he went up on the board and he put one plus one and he drew the line under it and he said, one of you geniuses go up there and solve that problem. And we knew when he did that, it was a trap. <laughs> and we sat there for a while and no one wanted to go up to the board. So finally someone got enough courage to walk up to the board and put one plus one is two. And the fun started. <laughs> and it started that he said, prove it. And when you tell engineers to prove something, we normally could prove it with math. But we kept putting two and he kept asking us how do you know it's two and we kept saying dr white because one and one is two he said prove it and we'd write two and he'd ask again how do you know it's two and finally he said wait a minute he said how do you know one is one <laughs> and after going round and round and round with that man we finally got to the point was he said okay you geniuses you can't prove one and one is two so tell me tell me what are you setting in and we said, we're sitting in a chair. He said, how do you know? And we said, everyone knows it's a chair. So we went around that. About three quarters way through the classroom, he finally had beat us up enough. And he finally said, what you science may, may people don't understand is you have to have a common belief in something before you can go anywhere yes. else. You have to believe that one is one before you can go to one is two. One plus one is two, because you can't prove one plus one is two if you can't prove one is one. So you have to believe something. If you're sitting in a chair, you have to believe you're sitting in a chair because someone told you that was a chair and that was your basic belief. So that course to me uh, kind of opened my eyes in engineering school. Uh, I'll skip some time now when oh, I graduated. One, one I second, I wanna teachers and their impact on your the formation of your career very often and I think that's something we've had some teachers on the podcast we've had principals on the podcast you you I wanted to highlight the teachers saw something in your personality they saw something in your character and because you were present that's why they gave you the opportunities that they gave you right? uh, without a okay. doubt um I think what the teachers observed was the ability to not give up and the ability to want to strive to, to keep improving and that hunger for knowledge, uh, I think they recognized and encouraged and by encouraging me, it enabled me to utilize what I already had inside of me to go even farther. And that resonates so much because in this day and age, we have such a huge problem with with attendance at school. And is it, do you really have to go every day or do you not? And the answer still may be, you know, you can miss a day here and there at school. But when you're there, that underlying message that you're not only just showing up, but you actually have to show your best is something that I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how often the message is portrayed. And if that was true back in 
50s and 60s and 70s when you're in school then it's definitely true now when we're not having face-to-face in the classroom we're um, stuck with this virtual learning in some instances we have to find a way to distinguish ourselves because the people who are going to help us need to see us in that capacity so that's what I wanted to highlight from what you were saying thank you for that Okay, the, the one thing that you were seeing there is with the virtual schools that uh, schooling that's going on today, as a student, I would venture to say you have to identify what type of a student are you. Some of us learn from different ways. And if you know you need to have face-to-face contact with someone, Maybe that's the way you learn. If you do it, you can do it off uh, from a virtual standpoint. That's fine too. But you need to know your strengths and weaknesses in your learning ability to take it from there. Yes. So where do you want to go from there? Uh, you were talking about philosophy and how that was a challenging class for me for you, which you definitely understand. Um, and you also highlighted the fact that a lot of your before you had that major in college. So you had the internships right out of high school. You were seeking those out. And I think oftentimes we're in college and our head is in college, but thinking about these other opportunities and then when it comes to the workforce, we don't have the experience. So how did you find out about those opportunities? Were they advertised or do you, how, were, how, did, how did you find out? Would you repeat please because you were coming in and out? Oh, sorry. Yes. How did you find out about the opportunity to you to allow you to go to Denver and California and Tennessee? Okay. Understood. Uh, one of the good things about the engineering curriculum was we had companies coming onto campus ongoing and we had a very good instructors who had connections with companies all over the country. And when they would come to to campus, they would hold little social functions uh, in the evening sometimes that we would allow to attend. And it started to introduce us to the business side of the world of engineering and meeting true engineers and starting to discuss with them what true engineering was all about. Not just the information after engineering classes, but what was really the foundation of being successful with all different types of country, com- companies. Uh, the IBMs of the world came in, the Xerox of the world came in, the Chevron Alls came in, the e- ESSO came in, uh, all facets of manufacturing and gave us the time to start to formalize what branches or what areas we really want to go in. Uh, because from that, uh, believe it or not, my first job was with Procter & Gamble and was in a non-engineering field. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I graduated college, I had 19 offices in engineering. I, I'm sorry, we, I had 18 offices in engineering and one in management. <laughs> and I took the one in management uh, with Procter & Gamble as a Zest supervisor in Kansas City. Uh, but at the time, Procter & Gamble was hiring, if they'd hire uh, 15, 20 people, 90% of us were engineers with people skills. 
So the the avenue, the engineering background enabled me to be to learn to start to be a manager that paid off later in life because and while at Procter & Gamble, I was a Zest supervisor, I was a maintenance manager, I was a department head. Uh, and when I left there, I then went to Pepsi uh, to expand. And I went to, from Pepsi to a operational manager standpoint that ran a, a, uh, a Pepsi plant in fact there in, in, in Flint, Michigan. Uh, from Waco, Texas, I mean, I'm sorry, from Kansas City, Kansas to um, Michigan there to Flint and the Pepsi plant there. Uh, and that was a different environment with different people, uh, different backgrounds. Learning to run a Pepsi plant was totally different from running a, a, a Procter & Gamma plant or uh, being exposed to a P&G uh, type of environment. But at the same time, it gave you a different perspective of different industries that were going on around you. Uh, and from the Pepsi, I moved again to Waco, Texas, where I went in as a, a, a project engineer uh, in the packaging room. Uh, and believe it or not, the packaging rooms may be 50 yards by 30 yards long uh, on the packaging aspects of it. And from there, where I was supervising really engineering standpoint from a, a Snickers line and from a Snickers line uh, supervisor from a mechanical engineering standpoint or packaging engineer standpoint uh, I went to the sugar side of the business where believe it or not I was helping design machines that were running candy at 1500 pieces a minute uh, that as fast as you could see it was just, just blowing through and it was interesting in that I can some of your students might find it very interesting. On that project, when I was in, in on that particular project, I had a project that we were designing overseas with a, a firm from Germany. And I took, I think it was nine associates with me to learn the equipment that we were working on over there and getting ready to buy. We were semi-designing it with them. And when we walked in the first day, we were sitting down and I was introducing my, my, my associates that I'd taken over there with me and they were hourly folks. And I introduced my electrician to one of the guys who had designed the, the electronics on this piece of equipment that was running 1500 pieces a minute. And he was a PhD electrical engineer, German, smart guy. And he would not mm -hmm. speak to my hourly associate who was an hourly, but he was an electrician, but he was sharp. He would not speak to him, he would speak to me. And and I noticed this about 15 to 20 minutes that he was talking to me. So I finally said, okay, let me explain something to you. My background is mechanical engineering. He may not have a electrical engineering degree, but he can communicate very well. And finally the PhD from Germany starts talking to him. And by the third day, he didn't speak to me anymore. He was talking to the hourly associate. In fact, <laughs> when we brought the equipment back to Waco, that hourly associate took that complete program that was on that machine, redid it in our language, and the PhD started borrowing his equipment. That shows you the power, the oh, power wow. of don't let an education label stop you from doing anything. If you want to do it, you can do it. Any event, you want me to keep moving on? <laughs> no, that's amazing because I know another aspect that we are dealing with within the STEM professions is being 
the only one or the only voice. And sometimes we find ourselves in a position where we have to advocate for others. So your story really highlights the fact that you took that opportunity to advocate for someone else who didn't have the same educational background as you. And that's important because this is a STEMish podcast. So we don't want to create differences because some people chose to go in a particular field and maybe someone didn't. Everybody on the team is important. So that is a great message for our listeners, as you suggested. Thank you for that. You know, you you mentioned, um, a, you mentioned a part there of advocating for someone else. It's very important to know that as I was working my way up the corporate ladder and I was going the engineering route, but I at some point switched to the management side of the business. And I found out that the real decisions in the workforce uh, may not be made where most of us think they are. By that, I had a boss tell me one time, in fact, I was in Kansas City, PNG then, he said, Donnie, you get your raises from nine to five and you get your promotions from five to 10. Hmm. Listen to that again, you get your raises from nine to five, you get your promotions from five to 10. And I told him, well, I guess I won't be getting many promotions. And he said, I understand what you're saying. I understand where you're coming from. But I wanted to tell you the way the real world operates. And as I climbed the, climbed the corporate ladder, and I finally got up to a point where I was operation manager at, at uh, Uncle Ben's and also at, at Albany, when I was in the room making the decisions, I found out what he said was very, very true. Because if you don't get an opportunity to meet with the people that make the decisions when it comes time to making the decisions you will be left on the outside and that's a decision that we have as individuals have to make but it has to be a knowing decision that if you make that decision you have to be willing to live with the results and when you are supervising uh, six or seven managers who are supervising six or seven hundred people you have to be in a position to be able to let go of that control that got you to the place that you were at by being self-sufficient by being dedicated by being that dog in you to be successful when you get to that level to be successful you have to relinquish some of that to other people to be able to let them grow and succeed that's interesting. So knowing your limits and knowing when to sign off and, and have someone else. Okay. So, the, well, you know, um, as I would see it as members of a team, you want to make sure everyone has a talent. So having an opportunity to focus on those talents sounds like what would be going on in those particular cases. I, I think that's a very good point. And I think that was a philosophy that, that I always use is that in order to be successful, you have to develop successful people so that you can let go and let them be successful. That has always served me well. So it sounds what else like you need in, in, you've, obviously, you've obviously had a lot going on throughout the whole career. And I think that a lot of engineering and they say 
oh well engineers were in the midwest because that's what they tend to do but we were living in the midwest we were working with uh procter and gamp of a pharmaceutical company and and pepsi cola and then moved to work with mars and then mississippi to work with uncle ben's rice um in georgia so different careers that are linked with engineering and you just have to be in the right place you have to be on the right management track i guess um or not even management just career track in order to uh intersect with those so then a question that i have is growing up i always heard you say you were going on recruitment events and you go to different colleges and me a little bit more what you were looking for and who was up same opportunities that you did when you went to those recruitment fairs you know that's 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 very interesting because depending upon what the needs of the business were you differentiated between what type of a student you really were looking for to bring on board by that i meant if you were strictly doing engineering with other engineers i would look for an a a minus b plus student to work with other engineers if they were in the technical end of the business mm-hmm. if they were going to be in the operational end of the business i would still be looking for engineers but i would be looking for the b to c minus student because they typically had more people skills and particularly if they had a family if they had been married for some reason uh, uh, married and had kids and had a c plus or b average that told me that if they put their mind to it they could have easily been an a student mm-hmm. that also told me would tell me that when times got tough they would not walk away and quit in fact I w- I'll tell you an interesting story. I learned this. I was interviewing with IBM when I was coming out of college. And I'd been in an interview with this this gentleman for about, oh, about 45 minutes. And he said, he looked me dead in my face and said, you're not good enough to work for IBM. <laughs> and I looked back at him and said, you know what? We wasted both of my time because IBM is not good enough for me to work for. <laughs> that was on an interview. He gave They gave me an offer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I learned from that, and believe it or not, I used that on every interview. If I was, thought I was getting ready to hire someone, and I thought that they were good, I would in that interview, I would just look them in the eye and say, you're not good enough to work for whatever company it was. And I was only wrong two times my whole career, because most times they would come back and fight back. The two times they were not, they crumbled and went away. That told me that when times got tight, when, when the job got hard, they did not have what was necessary to stand there and fight. That was a variable, very important lesson that I learned early on, and it served me very well throughout my career. So having the interviewer uh, say that you weren't good enough to work for the company, just I seeded something within you to respond and then to understand your value and work. Work. Yes, but what 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 he was really doing was trying to find out 
what my true background and my true backbone was. That's really what he was doing. And that's the reason that I used it. Strictly mm-hmm. said, you, you can look at a resume and look at where a person has done good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, in fact, I would have a question thinking about this you bring up some other thoughts in my mind I had I would have a question that I would ask on an interview I would say take me back to junior high school and tell me everything that you've done and they would look at me because it would be an engineering uh, interview or management interview and they would look at me like what does that have to do with anything and they would start off while I was in junior high school and then I was in high school then I went to college and I'd say go back to junior high school tell me what you did in junior high school and really what I was looking for was if, if, it, was, if, it, was, if it was junior high school I cut grass I babysit I wanted to know were they starting to develop a inner strength in junior high school mm. when they got to high school I wanted to know did you play sports? Were you in drama? Did you participate with other people? I can look at the grades. You can tell me the grades, but I want to know how well you interacted with other people because once you get in the industry, in a professional industry, that's going to be your key to success unless you totally stay on the technical side. And in today's world, that won't get you by. You have to be able to deal with people. So that was a learning experience. And that was a question that I would love to just pop people with to see their reactions. And and the ones who would come through could really come through. Mm-hmm. And I guess the bigger answer would be, particularly in engineering school, at some point you can find the answer. You will not get through engineering school without being able to find the answer. The question then becomes, what do you do with the answer once that you have it? Can you communicate that with others? Because if you can't, having the right answer does you no good. So there we have it. All the since we have a variety of different listeners with a variety of different ages, the junior high school students have to get get busy, huh? <laughs> I'd say so. But definitely want to get busy and start because you never know when that question will pop up. So that's great. Um, you know, I would be remiss if we if we ended this interview without talking a little bit about the struggle of being a black male in engineering um, right now, some startling statistics with technology engineering. The numbers aren't great. Um, in my profession, the numbers actually looked about the same as when potential okay you're cutting in and out again okay are you there yes I am here I'm here the phone disconnected (laughs) so my question was um, yes I just reconnected I'm going now no no he's here I'm on the phone right now, finishing the interview. He's still on the link. He's still on the link. Okay. So I wanted to, let me start over there. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, black men as technology, engineering, and math fields and how they have not really increased since the 70s when you were 
gaining your experience and your education. What are what are some words of wisdom or advice that you would have for others who are entering these fields? And for the most part, they will still be the only one who looks like them in the room, or there won't be very many more. What what pearls of wisdom would you have for them? I guess after thinking about your question, it would be when I talked earlier about inner strength, when I talked earlier about having a goal, when I talked earlier about setting your sights high and making an observation of what and who are around you, and do you want to go that route or not go that route? Uh, how bad do you want to succeed on whatever it is that you want to do I don't care if it's an engineer or if it's a doctor or if it's a garbage can operator be the best that you can be and particularly in the in the business environment I'm going to tell you a little story I don't know if I've ever told you this story when I was at the Chevron Hall in the engineering staff that was one engineer that was down the hall for me from the day I got there for about a month, never spoke to me. And he would walk by my office every day and look in at me and keep walking. And so I asked my supervisor, I say, what's up with Rick? I think that was his name. He said, don't worry about him. He's not going to bother you. I said, okay. So after about a month, Rick finally walked in my office and said, do you mind if we talk? I said, sure. I said, what's the topic? He said, I've never, he, he was from Nebraska, one of those small towns in Nebraska, and he went to school up there. He said, I've never been around a black person in my life. He said, all I ever knew about black people was what I saw on television, and you, you folks were no good. He said, that is what was instilled in me growing up. That was what I learned in my town. I went to college with no blacks, so I never knew. He said, after observing you a month and seeing how you handle yourself, talk, uh, the engineering knowledge, he said, my thought of black people is not, were, was not hmm. right. And I've been talking to my parents that it was, it was not right. But the only thing that I had to compare it to was what I saw on television. So taking that information and, and carrying on, you have to be the best that you can be. You mentioned something about going to school and attendance. I would have perfect attendance in school, but I always would miss sometimes when I didn't have perfect attendance, I'd miss one or two days a year. But I would always be sure to go to school when it was bad weather. Because everyone else was at, was at home. <laughs> so even being in school, even if you're not on your, it's your best day, you can stop and think. You'll pick up something that day that you might have missed if you were not yes. there. And also, the friends that you associate yourself with will go a long ways in helping you stay on the path that you would like to stay on. Because of all of you trying to achieve something, 
all of you are studying, all of you are working, that keeps you headed in the right direction and may keep you from veering off to an area that will not be productive for you. Fair. This interview by asking you one final question. Someone that started a career, retired from the career, you would definitely have the answer for. What does success look like? That's a very interesting question because success if defined correctly is defined by what you think it is not what other people think it might be but what you think it might be I I give you an example some people say success might be a millionaire but I would counter what good is being a millionaire without good health Mm -hmm. I would define success of being more of having a family nucleus around yourself wife kids that can depend upon each other that has a work ethic to succeed that trusts each other that yes monetary needs are met but once you get to a certain level of monetary needs if you can buy basically what you want when you want to do it and go where you want to go the basic needs from a monetary standpoint has been satisfied you can keep adding to that but your basic needs are satisfied then what else gives you comfort I guess the biggest idea I would say would be success for me at this point is I can do what I want to do when I want to do it and where I want to do it and people will ask me well you retired now you can do this do that and I tell them now my time is more valuable because before someone else was paying for my time now my time belongs to me and I can do anything I want to do or not do with that time therefore that's what I define success as in the end there you have it well thank you very much for agreeing to be on our podcast sharing words of wisdom and agreeing to spend your our listeners uh we really appreciate having you on here have a great evening all right love Love you you baby bye-bye (laughs) bye-bye